0: Welcome to the Innovation Conversation, a podcast about innovators, both in business and real life, hosted by myself, Ricardo Pesquale and Harry Makana. Today's episode is sponsored by HyperSkill. HyperSkill is a learning and training platform that enables people from all over the world to learn new tech skills. If you're looking to learn new tech skills, this is a platform to choose can find out more about them on hyperskill.org. Today, we are talking with Alexander Pishkinov, a very well-known investor, about what investors look for in a startup and some very interesting stories, even involving the FBI. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Innovation Conversation. Today, we are joined by Alexander Pishkinov. I hope I pronounced your last name correctly. Um, Alexander, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure.
1: Thank you very much, Ricardo, for inviting me to speak to your wonderful audience.
0: Yeah, me and Harry are both quite excited about your presence here because it's actually the first time we have an investor on our podcast and we've interviewed quite a few startups now. Um, so we, we're kind of curious to find out what ticks all your boxes and what you're looking for in terms of you know, um, startups when you do invest in them. But also, how do you feel about the market right now? So I guess let's get started with, with a very straightforward question. Everyone's complaining about well, the market's really bad right now. It's hard to get investment What's your your take on this?
1: Well, look, I think that uh, honestly, the markets are bad uh, if a person does not know how to fundraise or how to do proper business development, right? So even in the down market, there will be companies who are still doing well, who are still, you know, raising from the top VCs, who are still signing contracts. And actually any kind of down market is an opportunity, right? Because you get to acquire your competitors on the cheap, you still get to promote yourself. And then once the market picks up, then you know you do get the opportunity to sort of expand it uh, tenfold, right? So what I would say, especially uh, if you are a deep tech startup, for example, because me and my family specialize in deep tech, I would say that it's very important to uh, actually uh, project uh, much more carefully as to uh, where would your money uh, go towards once your fundraiser do have a big runway and uh, do not uh, you know try and chase after every kind of contract that you can potentially get because otherwise it is unlikely that uh, you would actually be able to
2: cover them so uh, do plan your strategy properly as well okay interesting John, it's there really quickly because uh i know at the beginning of our conversation you mentioned you want different questions thrown at you and i I want to make sure this is a free-flowing conversation. So it would always be interesting to see, especially as deep tech, and that's an emerging market. It's very, very hard. And working with some SMEs in the deep tech space, especially getting funding from Innovate UK, getting university funding, getting out there, it's almost impossible in the UK market to really get that funding because you need lots and lots of money kind of thrown into it, such as quantum computing. What I wanted to say is, from your perspective, and let's do a scenario here, if you were to be an SME, how would you get started, and then how would you approach an actual investor? So I'd find that quite interesting from uh, from from our audience's perspective. Is something that's really hard to raise for. How would an investor go about it if they were a startup?
1: Well, look. I mean, uh, you've mentioned emerging markets, and then you've mentioned UK. Uh, to be honest with you, Harry, results are two completely different beasts, right? So, in the UK, yes, it might be more problematic, but there are also much more opportunities. For example, in the grant space. Or, uh you know, when you are approaching sources uh, other than venture capital for financing. So, for example, in the UK, you can raise venture debt, you can go to venture studios who are, you know, supporting you, maybe not as much with money as they are supporting you with expertise, uh, R&D, engineers, you know, marketing. And, uh, you know, in return, they are basically joining you as a co-founder, right? So you're giving away much more equity. But uh, for some founders, uh, it is worth it, especially, you know, if you are considering deep tech companies or hardware, where uh, once again, you know, R&D takes so much longer, it takes longer to commercialize. Um, so if I was, you know, fundraising for an early stage company uh, in deep tech in the UK, mm-hmm. I uh, would, uh, first of all, focus uh, quite a bit on um First of all, developing the MVP, right? Because for the investor, it's very important to actually be able to touch or at least experience the product. And uh, even, you know, even if you're not selling it uh, to the B2C or to the B market yet, uh, it is, uh, you know, still uh, a sign for the investor that by uh, giving you the money, he would not be, you know, trying to kickstart a train, which is still but he would just be, you know, putting more coal into the fire. And obviously, you know, grants uh, can be a good thing. Problem with grants is that uh, usually they do not last for a long time, right? And they're only one-offs. So uh, usually, you know, they're just using equity-free option by entrepreneurs. And it could be a a good opportunity for slight self-promotion, right? So, for example, if the UK government or the corporation gave you a grant, it means that, you know, at least your idea and technology are promising and innovative. Uh, And then, you know, obviously, uh, if you are considering the traditional VC route, there are lots of opportunities in the beginning. You would probably still have to spend quite a bit of your own money, right, in the so-called friends, family, and uh, fools round. (laughs) Then... Angels, uh, early stage VCs, you know the you know the drill. Uh, yeah. But in the emerging markets, actually, uh, the situation is much more complicated because uh, in the emerging markets, very very few uh, people, such as for example, business angels or accelerators, actually exist, and the majority of the money is concentrated in the private equity stage or you know the M and A deals. And as a result, at the idea stage, especially for deep tech startups, it's very very difficult. And uh, this problem is compounded by the fact that a lot of entrepreneurs, for example, from Eastern Europe or from some countries in Southeast Asia, they think completely differently uh, you know about uh, their whole business development process, right So what they're trying to do is they're trying to build as technologically sophisticated product as possible, not really understanding that you know there is no end to uh, technological perfection. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a result, you know, they're, uh, they're spending quite a lot of money on patents. They are, you know, com- uh, continuously updating the product. And then uh, they're just being laid to the market by uh, some startup in the UK or the States, or even in Australia who just uh, prioritized commercialization as a first uh, aspect, right? So if I was a startup in an emerging market, uh, you know, one of the first things I would do is uh, first of all, you know, try and
0: um, get some clients. Secure, and...
1: Se- se- try and secure, you know, jurisdiction in Western markets because mm-hmm. it's uh, it might, you know, be slightly more expensive and it might take some time. But it's also a sign, for example, for the Western investors that you are uh, being international from day one. While, for example, if you were, you know, building your deep tech startup and then you know, mainly fundraising from the local guys and doing business in the local market. Well, for the uh, funds in Silicon Valley, for the funds in London, uh, traction in Vietnam or in Russia or in Bolivia, unfortunately, does not cut it, right? So, uh, I mean, uh, there is no golden rule, unfortunately. Otherwise, you know, we'd all be millionaires and billionaires. So
2: So you must have a a golden rule with if you don't mind me asking, because again, you you invest in, I guess, deep tech, but you're also situated in various different countries. And having a look at your LinkedIn profile, you mentioned you're in Singapore. Again, that's going to the Asia Pacific region, which Singapore is very, very advanced. But then you've also had experience in America and various other regions. So I guess that takes a lot of knowledge, a lot of expertise. And again, you, you would have had experience firsthand into what sectors were the best. But Comparing markets, which would you say is the easiest to really launch a deep tech business and get out there? Well,
1: I would definitely, you know, consider the developed markets, like for example, the United States or uh, the UK. But um you know, deep tech—it's a huge field, right? It includes, you know, software, it includes hardware, it includes AI, robotics, space tech, IoT, smart cities. You've mentioned it, right? And uh, if you look, you know, at the national trends, for example, you would see that UK is very, very good in biotech. Uh, it's doing great work in artificial intelligence, some uh, very, very innovative startups in cybersecurity, in health tech. But uh, when it comes, for example, for the consumer applications, right in deep tech, they're not so great, right? In quantum computing, it's mainly the US startups, the Canadian startups that are leading the pack, right? So I would not. Uh, you know, once again, say that uh, it's easy just by focusing on the big market to uh, arrive at a situation where you, you would just be, you know, fundraising left and right as an entrepreneur, where you would be, you know, having a great uh, bunch of companies to potentially invest in as a VC. And even if you look at, like, for example, um, artificial intelligence by itself, you would find that, you know, some. Sub-sectors within the wider market are trending quite uh, favorably, yet others are, you know, lagging behind. And uh, this is a big problem for the generalist VCs who are, you know, looking at financial technology, deep tech, at AI and whatever, and, you know, just trying to uh, invest in uh, the low-hanging fruit because the likelihood is, you know, they are not really as able to do due diligence. They're not as able to, support their portfolio companies once they do invest. And usually, you know, even if you are a late stage investor, you still have to wait maybe three or four years until you are actually able to generate a meaningful exit. Mm-hmm. And uh, in order to generate that exit, you do need to, you know, provide something other than the money, right? So the smart money aspect. So, uh, you know, know. <laughs> one of the things that I've learned very, very early on is that, um, you know, if you are, for example, specializing in healthcare is great, but uh, it, you probably should specialize just in healthcare, then, right? Because you need to uh, assemble uh, the right team in order to do proper due diligence, in order to build up the right sources for deal flow, and all the other things. And this is what COVID taught quite a lot of people that uh, you know, generalist uh, investors uh, usually don't outperform
0: the market. So let me ask you something how did you how do you get started in in, in being an investor because that's, mm-hmm. that's that's something that always got me very curious and I'm sure a lot of our audience as well how do you get started in becoming an investor because you know unless you start as a multimillionaire because you have some family money i I'm assuming is it is a lot of hard work and you need to do a lot of research into this so tell us a bit about your journey
1: well uh I- Great question, Ricardo. So, look, I cannot, you know, put my hand on my heart and say that, you know, when I was growing up, when I was finishing uni, all I knew is that, you know, I want to become a venture capitalist, right? So, I did start um, because, you know, I'm originally from Russia, but uh, I studied in the UK at school and at university, and just like the majority of the people who want to make something out of themselves, I started up in investment banking. After some time, moved to private equity, so that's a traditional finance career. Mm-hmm. And you know what excited me back then was, you know, not the salary, even though it was great. It was an opportunity to do exciting deal deals all over the world, and I did get to network quite a bit with entrepreneurs and. What uh, became really interesting is to understand, you know, how does it make the decisions, what it takes to, you know, spin an idea stage company into a mid sized business. So I left to start up my own company. Mm -hmm. Uh, Back then, you know, I was not a tech guy. It only came later. So my company dealt with wine imports uh, from exotic countries into the uh, restaurant and bar industry back in the UK. Uh, Sold it when Brexit came and you know decided that um, i just don't want to you know deal with manufacturing real estate and tech m and anymore i mm-hmm. want to do something much more meaningful so i took my financial experiences i took my uh, experiences as an entrepreneur and i moved to silicon valley and yep. i started to work much more with early stage guys who you know yes they had burning eyes uh, and great passion but not much more than that, unfortunately, right? So when I uh, joined a fund in the US, we were focusing more on the earlier stage deals. So that seed in series A. And uh, for me, it was very exciting, you know, because I think that was a time when I, uh, you know, started to receive the craziest deals that I ever saw. And, you know, the kind of deals that you can, you know, put up on your wall and smile every time that you um, walk nearby because you just cannot dream of them even in your, you know, craziest dream. But, uh, you know, that Silicon Valley for you, that's where, you know, the majority of the innovations uh, get born and die eventually. And th- that was part of the fun. So um you know just like I decided that things need to change when Brexit came uh covid also um made me reconsider some of my options so I moved over to Singapore and you know started up uh the fund where I work right now and uh back when I was in the states we did early stage deals right now we're focusing on the later stage ones, and to be honest with you guys, um, I might say that, you know, especially in the smart money aspect, it's much more meaningful to run a late stage fund because you're not just, you know, simply helping out with key introductions or, you know, helping to make C-level hires or product validation, but it's much more to do with, you know, late stage m international expansion, fundraising and whatnot. So the actual hands-on aspect is much more interesting. And as a result, uh, there is much more uh, in terms of actually, you know, being able to justify your equities that you're trying to ask
0: in return. Hmm. Interesting. All right, I got to ask you this one. This is a bit of a, a wild card. But when you're all this investing, moving to Silicon Valley, did you have the world famous gilet or the vest that you know <laughs> investors are known for, <laughs> or not? Is that part of the uniform, or there's no such thing?
1: Well, look. Uh, Very interesting question. You know, it's just a stereotype. And, uh, you know, I think that it's very, very important to dress and act as the part uh, who your clients are, right? So as a venture capitalist, you know, everybody goes in thinking that, hey, you know, I'll be this uh, rich uh, tech guy, I'll be my own boss. Unfortunately, you're still responsible to many people. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the groups is obviously your LPs, right? The investors into the fund. Yeah. And usually they're quite conservative, right? So, for example, at our fund, we are uh, not looking into some sectors which could be questionable, like, for example, blockchain or, you know, crypto or ViceTech and things like that, because... Um, a lot of those startups are associated with hype. Some others are associated with scams. And overall, you know, uh, often case, um, the actual financial uh, motivations are quite questionable with a lot of entrepreneurs. Uh, and the second group is that you as a VC are partly responsible to, right? Are your, um, uh, portfolio companies or potential portfolio companies, right? So the entrepreneurs. And especially if you look at hotbeds of innovation, like, for example, in London or in Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. you get to deal, you know, with the tech bros, right? Who are not, uh, you know, Patagonia vest suited. Yeah. They're, you know, hoodie, uh, you know, sweatpants, uh, sometimes quite stylish, uh, other times, uh, you know, much less so, but, if you if you if you are donning their Brioni suits or uh, you know loafers, uh, they will just not understand you, right? So you do have to pre- present yourself in a different manner.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's it's an interesting one because obviously we've had you know plenty of guests uh, so far, and I think one of the issues that people always have on the back of their minds is. Uh, how well will they integrate with the individual they're talking to? Right? Do they dress apart? The do they not dress apart? The are they coming in with you know? Are they? Is it like tech tech bro mood, or is it completely different? And that's all, I think that's always something that y- you find in a lot of entrepreneurs is that kind of imposter syndrome. So let me ask you this: Do you find do you find that people when they go to and speak with investors and and network and all that do you spot straight away, okay, this person is very nervous, they have a bit of an imposter syndrome, or quite on the contrary, you find that most entrepreneurs actually are able to correctly articulate their ideas and their their companies?
1: Well, look, I mean, uh, we are not, you know, having a checklist which lists different kind of syndromes as potential, you know, red flags for rejection. Mm -hmm. And we do understand that, you know, especially in uh, the big hubs, like once again, London or Silicon Valley or New York or Germany, you get entrepreneurs from all over the world who sometimes don't, you know, speak English as a native language, who sometimes are much more technically oriented. And as a result, you know, they are more uh, shy when it comes to dealing with people. Mm -hmm. And, you know often case uh for example right now uh as we are a late stage fund it's still much more you know about the actual um financial revenue that they do have about their forecast about their contracts about you know how uh well can the existing be can the existing product be spun out into product line while for example if we were you know if i was uh you know still working at that early stage fund obviously you know Uh, if a ceo uh is quite awkward around people it's a bad thing because Mm -hmm. it does mean that you know it will be more difficult for him not only to fundraise but also to sell to the potential clients but for example if it was you know a chief technical officer then perhaps it's not such a big problem because we understand that you know a great team is a team that um complements each other Mm -hmm. uh but you know still um once again, if it's a consumer-facing product, uh, then being able to articulate yourself uh, is much more important. But also um, what is important is, for example, if you maybe don't don't really communicate as well, but you have great traction or UI serial entrepreneur, then mm-hmm. it counts much more because for us it's a sign that maybe, maybe you don't really know how to spell it eloquently right, but once it comes to the business, then you know your stuff and that's much more important
2: it's interesting do you have a oh. question I just want to go on to that one you mentioned about your later stage fund what, what kind of check sizes do you do you throw out there
1: oh it's uh in the dozens of millions
2: and then, do you also follow the process of you go on lead investor approach so as long as that individual a like lead investor you follow it or do you kind of throw out all the cash into them straight away
1: uh, well, we uh, occasionally lead our deals sometimes, you know, uh, because we are uh, already investing in deals which are quite well known. Sometimes we do uh, prefer uh, the round to be led, you know, by a huge investor, which for us, you know, it's not only a sign of quality, but it's also an opportunity for them to sort of bear the brunt of the of the work and the risk. Uh, but, uh, you know, when it comes to leading the round, obviously it's much more uh, beneficial because not only we do get an opportunity to take more equity, but also it's much more, uh, meaningful when it comes to, for example, to the board presence or to the public attention. So it's a better opportunity for us to showcase, for example, to our LPs and the funds that, you know, hey, we, uh, were the right avenue, uh, for your money.
2: And then, just going off that as well, you again being a lead investor, you've got, you got you get the lion's share, you get more equity on that side. But I just want to throw it out there: you've all seen the story of of WeWork and how great that was with, with SoftBank putting a lot of money into it, and you know, and Adam Newman kind of doing his own bits and pieces. Have you got similar stories to that? If you don't mind sharing, has has anybody ever done something similar to any of the companies you've invested in, or has it anything you know cautionary tales? Or that'd be quite, quite well. Interesting.
1: Um, I mean, Adam Newman, very interesting guy, Uh, you know, obviously you can say a lot about him, but what you cannot deny is that this guy knows how to fundraise and this guy knows how to sell, right? And he does uh, present a clear picture how to revolutionize an industry, namely the real estate industry, which is very, very old-fashioned in its current nature, and Mm -hmm. it's huge in terms of the market size, right? So this is why... You know, yes, uh, we work uh, flopped. Yes, uh, you know Masayoshi very, very unhappy. But Adam Newman, he still fundraised for his uh, second venture, right? Yeah. Because he did not lie outright, even though he did, you know, uh, make some claims which are quite bold. But unlike, for example, Elizabeth Holmes and Tyrannus, he did not lie outright. So now she's in jail, and you know he's uh, living. The entrepreneur life uh, let's just say that i mean look i think that every investor has their own cautionary tales for example one uh of let's say the horror stories that i've personally dealt with was when i was still working at the u.s fund and we were uh considering an investment in an entrepreneur uh whose business uh whose contracts whose patents, and whose you know general demeanor were very, very promising. So uh, he had, uh, you know, great experience in major corporations. He had a bunch of uh, contracts, uh, probably under his name. He had, uh, you know, a team which was very, very developed. So we originally liked it. We started to do due diligence. And um, somebody gave us a hint that, you know, perhaps we should hire a private investigator. And uh, you know, to give you guys um a perspective, this this is something that does not happen very often. Mm-hmm. So we hired that investigator and he say he came back after um, a week or so to us and he said, Hey, you know, this guy might be great, but he changed his name. Uh under the previous name he is wanted by the FBI uh, <laughs> for stealing a bunch of uh, you know, trade secrets from his employer. Mm-hmm. Uh, several contracts that he claimed are fake, and you know perhaps uh, wow. best not to be associated with him, right? So we rejected the deal, uh, after some time uh, he got put in prison, right? So, uh, I mean, look, uh, that's Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley is a place where there is just so much free money floating around, that you are considered a fool as an investor, uh, not when you uh, gave the money to a company which eventually flopped, but if he did not give the money to a company which eventually, you know, had a hockey stick kind of growth, right? Yeah. So uh, this is um, one of the major uh, comparisons, for example, if you look at uh, Silicon Valley and, you know, look at emerging markets, right? So, and if you are an entrepreneur, on the other hand, uh, once again, you know, you are much more valued in the society uh, not you know when you lied or when you exaggerated the truth, right? To put it this mm-hmm. way, but when you exaggerated the truth and got caught, right? So once again, uh, slightly different attitude to innovation, and you know it's 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 not bad. It's just a different way of doing things, I suppose, right? Because without it, I suppose you know Silicon Valley would not have become is a place uh, which it is now and there are good things and there are bad things just like in any other kind of innovation ecosystem
2: i just want to throw it over to Ricardo very shortly i just got one last thing i want to go out there a lot of the stuff we see online on linkedin is always about startups saying how investors have rejected me or not replied and they all say the startup community is really really small and we all talk and we want to say this and this is a bad investor this is a good investor i really like this one so from what you've mentioned there would you say the investor community is very small? And what you've gone on about this kind of line, I presume he it's nearly impossible for him to ever raise investment again. Is that the case?
1: Well, of course. Look, I mean, uh, if you look at any kind of uh, investment or innovation ecosystem, the community is always very small. Like, for example, in Silicon Valley, it's multiplied by hundredfold, right? Because, you know, as an investor, you are always attending the same events. You are, you know... Uh, going to gym or you know to the nightlife in the same places and ultimately you do get to uh collaborate on due diligence or on deal flow sharing or on many other aspects of the overall work process so you do get to exchange opinions and this is why for entrepreneurs it's very very important to you know uh present themselves quite uh, cautiously But it's also very important to do property diligence on the investors, right? So do talk to existing portfolio companies to see, you know, how exactly helpful was the investor in relation to what the claim, you know, what kind of red flags, uh, what kind of, uh, you know, uh, investor base uh, do they have and things like that. So do take uh, an opportunity to sort of do your own due diligence and do not neglect it because otherwise, you know, you might be facing a problem, but it would be once, you know, he's already on your cup table, which is
0: not a good situation to be in. So what what type of red flags would you point out that, you know, for you are like a no-go and the moment you find them, obviously apart from being wanted by the FBI, which is a massive thing, um, which are the ones who say, okay, if this is not, you know, there, I'm not going to invest or I think it's a massive red It's like, can I ask for the top five or maybe top three? The ones who say, you know what, it's, it doesn't work for me at all.
1: Well, look, I mean, um, it's a broad question. It does depend on the stage. So, for example, when I was working at an early stage fund, uh, one of the red flags for us was if the entrepreneur is a solo founder, right? Because we do understand that, you know, there are only 24 hours in a day, no matter how bright you are. Quite unlikely, uh, you know, just uh, by the law of numbers that you would be able to, uh, do everything just by yourself. Um, other than that, you know, on the earlier stages, the red flags are, for example, uh, if you are, let's say once again, if you go to the deep tech space, if you are at an early, sp- early stage, uh, spending too much time and effort to, um, Allocate on patents, right, because we do understand that you know patterns at an early stage it can be circumvented quite easily, and once mm-hmm. you are in the public space uh, unless you know you have the right set of investors and uh, corporate clients, then it's uh quite likely that uh, a bunch of others can just you know circumvent the technology so uh and you know at the same time the patterns they take quite a long time to uh, secure especially if you're talking about the international ones and they can be quite costly which yeah. is the money that perhaps you know you should be spending on business development or early marketing or you know hiring you know uh, early team members while mm-hmm. if you're for example looking at the later stages then uh you know one of the red flags that we do uh, look at right now for example is when uh there is no alignment between us as investors And the founding team as to the strategy, the uh, medium and long-term strategy as to how the company should develop, right? Mm -hmm. Like, for example, if they are a company based out of Singapore and, you know, they are looking to expand to the States, but we and other investors think that, first of all, you know, States is a great market, but first of all, they they should be, you know... Focusing on the expansion, for example, in the Southeast Asian region, maybe go to China, maybe go to the emerging markets like Vietnam and Malaysia and this is a big red flag because you know even though at later stages investors do have much more equity than sometimes the entrepreneurs do, still the entrepreneurs are the public face of the company, and um, still quite a lot depends you know on their own vision and their ability to deliver. And this is why, you know, when a company uh, grows up a bit, you know, stops becoming an early stage company and reaches its growth stage, quite a few investors like to replace the original CEO because they do understand that, you know, hey, you know, this original guy, he might have had the great vision, but he is not as great, you know, when it comes to strategic expansion and uh, negotiation of contracts and if you look at the developed markets uh, then uh for the entrepreneurs it's not a problem right because they do understand that it would still be you know walking away with a sizable chunk of equity and they would be you know treated as almost uh, like a startup property because they would be considered serial entrepreneurs if they do look uh, at you know founding the next venture which for them would be much easier to fundraise for because they have already proven themselves mm-hmm. while if you look at the emerging markets then uh, the attitude is much more difficult because the entrepreneurs there, they are considering their startup to be sort of almost their baby. And as a result, you know, they are much less willing to actually you know uh, relinquish their reins of power. So that, that could cause some conflict.
0: I got another follow-up. It's the same, the same type of area. But would you advise a company from the UK to try and go and seek investment in the US? Reason being is a lot of the startups we talk with, they actually don't ask for that much money. I mean, the max ticket size they normally go for, or the the the, the first round they go for, is around two hundred fifty k. That has to do with that whole seis thing. However, would you, if you go to, if you look at the U.S. market, it's normally quite higher. Like seal is normally around a million. Would you advise anyone in the case say, hey, why don't you just? take a flight to San Francisco and try and raise some money there because you get got a lot more money and you can play around a lot more with that money. It gives you a much longer runway or not at all. Just say actually focus on your existing market and trying to raise investment from your local investors.
1: Well, look, I mean, I think that it does depend on, you know, once again, are you a serial entrepreneur? Or what's your network like, right? Because yes, in Silicon Valley or in New York's valuation sometimes, and, you know, that's not always the case, sometimes they are higher than in mm-hmm. London. But, uh, you know, it does take much more time and effort for you to travel between London and San Francisco. It does yeah. take much more time and effort to build up your network from scratch. And you would still be considered an outsider, even if you are a great company based out of London, uh, yep. unless you have taken some active steps to, you know, get integrated into the local system. So, for example, how you can do it? Maybe you can go through the local acceleration program like Y Combinator, right? Maybe you can try and secure financing from uh, the branch of uh, a VC fund that you fundraise from in London. If they do have offices, for example, in San Francisco, in New York. But in general, I would say that the best thing for you as an entrepreneur would be to focus on a market where the majority of your customers are currently based in and where your legal jurisdiction is, right? Because, uh, you know, for example, uh, in terms of the legal jurisdiction, it's much more understandable and convenient for the investors to deal with you on the fundraising aspect. If they have, um, you know, for example, the majority of the other portfolio companies in uh, that they have dealt with are in the similar jurisdiction, right? Because they understand better how to do proper term sheets with you as well. They understand some potential red flags or, you know, problems that can arise. And as a result, you know, they are much more willing to trust you or, uh, you know, on their own side to do due diligence on you because you would be, you know, reporting under the same guidelines. Um, And at the same time, you know, when it comes to the clients, uh, also, you know, if you are fundraising from the U.S. and the majority of your clients are from the U.K., yes, you know, it's easier than if the clients of yours, they were from Malaysia or from uh, Ukraine, for example. But, uh, you know, because of the similar uh, purchasing power and consumer habits between the U.S. and the U.K., but they're not the same, right? And the US investors understand that, right? So they are looking for traction on their local market. So yeah. what I would advise you, unless you are a serial entrepreneur who already knows how it's done and who already has a network, is to go and fundraise from the States if you're a UK based if you are a UK-based company. Mm-hmm. Once you know once you're in the growth stage, right? So for example, you've conquered the UK market maybe you know you are considering expansion to europe maybe you're considering the expansion to the states and you know what exactly do you want from the uk or from the us guys when it comes to the smart money aspect And once you have that sorted then do go and fundraiser
2: did you jump in though How does the fundraising compare to the from the us to the uk and to let's say africa and china because with the uk they've just relaunched or well, haven't relaunched it but they've just extended the. Let's say the deadline for SCIS and EIS to 2030 or 2035. So this gives investors more security, more aspects to you know play with their money, tax incentives. Is there something similar to that in America? And then following on from that, if you look at countries like Africa, a lot of the a lot of the money in Africa or the investment that comes into Africa is from the US, but a lot of it's often held in offshore accounts because of obviously uh let's say country regulations or corruption in other areas as well and then you also mentioned about china how do you you know how do those fundraising journeys differ from let's say if i was to do one in america i was to do one in the uk and maybe if i was to do one in africa or china because they're very harsh markets and there's a lot of uh you know tension between all of them i'd say well
1: look i mean if you're talking about africa for example i would say that um you know it's Quite difficult for uh, American or British investors, for example, in the VC space to actually consider Africa uh, properly because quite a few countries there, they're not uh, as sophisticated when it comes to the level of, uh, you know, infrastructure development, when it comes to the consumer preference and when it comes to their ability to actually pay for that product and also, um, It's quite difficult in Africa to grow a company from idea stage all the way to a public company. So it takes much longer and is more difficult for an investor to actually make a meaningful exit. So usually when it comes to Africa, you would not perhaps, you know, see the deep tech uh, companies doing well. You would see the companies in the impact space doing well, right? So maybe uh, financial services, maybe, you know, ride sharing or, uh, you know, electricity or clean water so things basically which are you know already solved for many decades in the west but you know they're still a big problem uh, for the uh, emerging countries in africa and uh, to be honest um it's not you know only applicable to you know uh, deep africa it's also to a certain extent applicable to even the spots uh, sports like for example south africa right because they're still facing quite a few of the similar problems as the rest of the continent uh, when you are talking about, for example, uh, about China, then uh, you would actually see that quite a lot of American investors, they would have loved to invest in China, right? Because China is a massively growing market uh, with a lot of the trends, uh, for example, uh, in terms of the massive development rate of artificial intelligence, they're quite similar, but mm-hmm. also there are more opportunities to actually, you know, uh, make... Um, deals which are not available anywhere else in the west problem is you you know because of the political tension because of the trade conflicts going on for many investors especially you know the bigger ones who are managing institutional money or you know the pension fund money it's quite difficult to invest in chinese startups and Mm -hmm. also uh, they quite quickly find that the chinese market it's much more closed to foreign investments and for example the US one. Right? So for example, if you are considering to invest in the Chinese market as a Western investor, one thing that quite a few funds do is they locate in Hong Kong, right? And through local shells they are trying to make deals on the mainland. But sometimes, you know, because once again of the politics and the differences in uh Purchasing power and other things. Sometimes they're not really, you know, able to make the right deals. And also, you have to consider the fact that quite a few uh, deals in China, just like deals in Silicon Valley, they're very overvalued, right? Because there is just quite a lot of money available in China, coming from very, very late stage investors. Who sometimes, if it's a uh, vertical which is growing quite rapidly, they're able to drown drown the vertical in money. And as a result, you know, even if you are An entrepreneur back in china whose business perhaps you know is not super stellar when it comes to the potential for international expansion you would still be able to grow a big company in the local region and sometimes it's just all you need right because like for example and if you compare it uh, to africa you can still you know make uh, a unicorn just by focusing on the local chinese market while for example in south africa or in uh, nigeria it's much much more difficult
0: No, because it it seems it's mentioned quite a lot of different regions there. But it's, you know, every time I hear, for example, about China, um, ride-sharing apps, you know, or actually the the bike-sharing apps, you now look at pictures and there's graveyards and graveyards full of bicycles because everyone kind of flooded the market, right? The potential was great. And then I also get that that thing you said about how investors, they buy onto the hype. So if it's if they see a lot of people are buying into the company, say okay, let, let me also buy it because you never know, know, it's hit or miss. Hit or miss. Sometimes they they actually might be uh, very successful. Um, what advice would you give right now to people? I wouldn't say just starting out, but they have some traction. They're you know, see, trying to go to Series A. What advice would you give them overall? Should they like? Is there like any tips or tricks you can give or, or something like that?
1: Well, look, uh, unfortunately, Ricardo, you know, once again, there is no golden strategy. What I would say is, you know, do uh, cherry pick your investors properly. So do your due diligence on them. Do try and understand what kind of smart money they bring and uh, do try and, you know, use them, use the money that you raised uh, quite responsibly, right? So don't go around, you know, buying up golden toilets. Don't go around, you know, bloating your team as much as possible, because, for example, especially you know, if you are a deep tech company or hardware company, then the likelihood is you know your investors would expect you to have a runway of maybe the next twelve to eighteen months, and that money needs to last, right? And if you are, uh, for example, a company in the more traditional space, then it it's uh, also quite important to spend quite a bit of your money on marketing, right? Because if you are in a market where your product is relatively understandable by both your investors and your consumers, then Mm -hmm. your moat, right? Your competitive advantage is much more, much less to do with your actual technology as it is uh, to do with your ability to differentiate yourself in the eyes of the consumer, as well as about your uh, business uh, relationships and clients that you might deliver, right? Because once they start using you, then it means that, you know, unless something goes catastrophically wrong, uh, it is less likely that they would start using your competitor, right? At least because, you know, of the sunk costs, right? So do have the right marketing strategy in mind. And this is especially important once uh, maybe you're not a seed stage company because at that stage, it's, you know, still much more about, you know, your product development and the hiring of your key uh, team members. But once you are a series uh, A or, you know, a growth stage company, because then you've already validated your product, you've already made, you know, a few key sales, and you've already impressed, you know, a few early stage investors. So what it would take for you to actually, you know, accelerate uh, that thing, maybe five or 10x, right? And Mm -hmm. that's
0: what the investors are looking for. Interesting. Um Alex, I don't know, Harry, if you have any questions, but um, if people want to reach out to you and find you, how can they do so? Well,
1: sure. I mean, guys...
2: One awesome uh, thing happy... before you uh, jump onto that one. Uh, I know it's, yes, it's going, that's always a question we ask right at the end, but it, it was just a really, really silly question that came to mind. But it's, me and Ricardo have been talking about it for ages. It's It's about startup scouting. I don't know. What is your view on startup scouting? Do you think it's wrong for people to be charging for introductions to to vcs and vice versa that this that, is a really silly one that's come up there because i just saw it pop up on a on a notification saying oh startup scouting's you shouldn't do this you shouldn't do that is what's kind of your view on the whole startup scouting do you think people should you know, charge for it or not charge for it well look
1: look i mean for example how do the vc uh vc funds are also uh you know occasionally employing startup scouts maybe you know once again, if it's a deep tech fund, maybe they have guys, you know, stationed in major tech universities like uh, MIT or Stanford, who are, you know, talking to student entrepreneurs who are engaging with their local accelerators and, you know, spotting the best. And usually, uh, the relationship between startup scouts and VCs is not, you know, on a fee basis, it's more, you know, on a, a success basis, right? So if they did, you know bring a company which is great then you know perhaps they do get an opportunity to invest in that company alongside that VC fund on good terms or you know they do get a small chunk of the equity uh and things like that right so it's usually much less commercial uh over the short run because for the VC fund uh it's more important that the startup scout is uh engaged uh Properly over the longer run as well. Otherwise, you would get you know people who are flooding those funds with all kinds of startups, uh, the majority of which would just not be relevant at all. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, to answer your question about how do I feel uh, when uh, a startup scout approaches you know entrepreneurs and uh, offers them an introduction to a VC, I I personally would not believe in that very much because ultimately, you know, uh, if you are an entrepreneur uh, who does not have the right connections by himself, then Mm -hmm. it is much more meaningful for you, even though it might take longer to actually uh, try and generate those connections by yourself. Maybe, you know, it can be done in multiple ways. Maybe you are, you know, once again, uh, going around and, Appearing at an acceleration program where a few angel investors or VCs are also present to potentially, you know, invest in those companies. Maybe you are, you know, displaying your product at some kind of, you know, technology or conference. Uh, maybe you are, uh, you know, once again appearing at a podcast and some people get interested. And you know, always it's very important, especially if you're an idea stage entrepreneur where there is uh, quite little in terms of traction or commercialization. Very important to show. That you have, uh, you know, a coherent vision and that you, as an entrepreneur, you are quite a, a reliable person to potentially associate with, right? So you're passionate and uh, you're reliable and that, that draws people much more than a connection by a startup scout who is, you know, always going to be on the sidelines. And ultimately mm-hmm. for a VC, if a startup scout came to me and said, Hey, you know, uh, I have a bunch of great companies uh, for your potential interest. Uh, ultimately, I would say that the majority of the companies, they would not be relevant. And the majority of the companies, we, we would not properly you know consider because um, the majority of the deals that we actually end up investing in, they come from our own network who are not, you know, stand-up scouts, but they are, you know, uh, maybe... Partners at other funds, or our own portfolio companies, or you know uh, the bigger guys who are saying that hey, you know we potentially could be doing an M and A with a startup uh, at a later stage once they do validate the technology, right? So for us, it's much greater uh, validation than some guy who wants to make a quick buck. So for you as an entrepreneur, I would say you know don't don't get sucked into uh, you know this. uh uh, business of people who are trying to profit off you do go the longer route, but the more meaningful one.
2: So what platforms yeah, and exactly. tools would you use for, you say, if you're a startup trying to find all these individuals or reach out and find mentors or investors? What's, what's kind of the best platforms? Is it just LinkedIn? Well, or is it...
1: I mean, uh, it's very important uh, even at an early stage, even if you're a seed stage or like a pre-seed company, to go and build up your public presence, right? So do... Uh, have your startup page in the major public databases like Crunchbase, uh, you know, List, AngelList, PitchBook, uh, even a bunch of others. Do try and you know uh, present your product at conferences. Do try and you know build up your LinkedIn. Uh, obviously, it's very important to once again uh, share your vision. And to explain every time coherently as to how exactly your product is unique uh, from your competition and how exactly are you planning to uh, draw it from the current point to maybe a few years' time in terms of the key product features, in terms of you know the geographical presence and things like that. So uh, public uh, persona uh, is very important, especially in the markets where there is quite a lot of competition and as a result you know there is opportunity for entrepreneurs even if uh, their commercialization aspect is not top-notch yet to still fundraise and to still make you know early um, introductions to potential
2: clients. Thank you i to you Ricardo I know you got your, your special words to ask.
0: <laughs> no no I was just okay. I think we should actually have an, another episode of this because there's so much stuff we can still ask you, and uh, it, it's like never ending. Because you, um, I should put this, all the startups we have. They always have questions for investors, but I think it's always hard to actually have an honest conversation and say, "Hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about that?" Because there's always an angle, right? Especially if you're a startup, because you're always looking. Oh, it's an investor. They might give me money, but neither me or Harry uh, are raising. So it's it's just a very honest conversation. Um, what i would ask you at this stage is if you want to share your details if people want to find you and then let's definitely schedule something for for an, uh, an extra episode if you're willing because that'll be great um so alexander if people want to find you on linkedin and and, and stuff how can they do so
1: well uh, ricardo let me just say one final thing for your startup audience right so like for example for us as a fund we have uh, a deal flow funnel of startups coming to us from a huge range of sources right like for example our investment team they're looking at public databases you know we are often going to different conferences to speak startups write to us sometimes startups write to us you know just because they know we are an investor who can potentially give the money so they're writing to us an email uh without you know Proper understanding of our investment focus. So, for example, once again, you know, we are a deep tech fund. Some people will come to us and say, hey, you know, invest in our ride sharing startup or whatever, right? Sometimes, you know, it's a deck which is not, you know, properly constructed. Sometimes it's uh, a very, very strange kind of introduction. So, when you are uh, code mailing investors, first thing you need to prepare for is to actually have all the right, uh, you know, marketing materials on hand. So, do, you know, build up uh, the right deck and do uh, research the funds or, you know, angel investors whom you are potentially approaching because otherwise the likelihood is, you know, you would just be ending up in the uh, proverbial spam folder, which is Mm -hmm. not something that you need to do. And obviously, you know, once again, if you're not a serial entrepreneur, some cold mailing can and uh, will probably be successful, but Mm -hmm. you just need to understand that, you know, it's not an easy or a quick process so do uh, your background research and that's the thing i wanted to say right i mean i would love to talk to your entrepreneur uh, listeners and do hit me with your crazy ideas uh, happy you know to stay in touch via linkedin i'm sure that the guys would uh, share it in due course
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, you know happy to potentially review a deck or two and you know share my own opinion
0: Okay, sounds good. Alexander, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Um, Thank you. Thank you. All right. um, So I'm just gonna press stop.